Good morning, everyone. Great to be with you uh, today. We will be in Mark 16, as uh, Pastor pointed us toward, so you can turn with me there. And uh, parents, if you have kids up through fifth grade and would like for them to go to age-specific teaching, that's offered now. A couple housekeeping things before we jump into our uh, passage for today. Um, as Todd told us, we'll be ending Mark uh, today, so I know many of you like to read ahead on what we'll be covering, so uh, a couple things related to the next uh, upcoming months, but we will be doing on Christmas Eve and then following on Christmas Day, we'll be considering the meaning of the name Jesus, that's what we'll do on Christmas Eve, and then on Christmas morning, we'll be considering the meaning of the name Christ or the title Christ. So a short little series to get us focused on uh, Jesus in particular and what he's accomplished. We'll also be taking the Lord's Supper on Christmas Eve. So if you want to uh, be preparing for that and uh, go talk with anybody you may have uh, conflict or disagreement with in order to prepare to take the Lord's Supper together, that will be uh, great. The following Sunday, so New Year's Day, Pastor Todd will be preaching. So looking forward to that. Psalm, remind me. Psalm 103. So we'll be looking at Psalm 103 on uh, New Year's Day. And then uh, for the rest of the month of January, we'll be considering four different passages where Jesus addresses four different things uh, about money. So a lot of us like to think uh, in the new year about some things we could work on in that coming year. For many of us, one of those areas might be our finances. And so we'll be looking at things Jesus said um, about money. And then, Lord willing, for the rest of the, the spring and through the summer, we'll spend that time together reading through uh, the book of Exodus. So from February through August, we'll be working through um, Exodus. So if you'd like to start reading ahead with somebody, maybe you could consider who you could uh, read a chapter or two a day uh, with as we work our way through Exodus. That would be really great. Uh, second thing, I know many of you will be traveling so we'll miss you, hope you have safe uh, trips and wonderful time with friends and family. We'll be praying you'll get gospel opportunities to uh, mention things the Lord's doing in your life, perhaps even share the gospel with friends and family over the holidays. Know of uh, our love for you and prayers, and hope you have a safe trip. And then uh, finally, to those of you who are members, as we end the year, um, I know Quite a few of you think about uh, year-end gifts, so I wanted to mention where we are in terms of uh, stewardship so that you could prepare accordingly. Um, for the rest of the year, we need as a church family to bring in, in terms of offerings, uh, $24,000, and that would bring us to uh, right at uh, budget or expenses for the year. So if you're able to give a year-end gift, that would be wonderful. Because you know as uh, inflation has been so significant this year, next year the budget is higher. And so anything that you give will help prepare us for the new year as a church family. So you can do that um, online with that QR code or there's boxes in the back. And um, that would be great. Thank you. So Mark uh, 16. We are at the point of celebration today and been uh, anticipating looking at this text with you, so excited about it. Uh, last Sunday, though, we left uh, Jesus in a borrowed tomb. His cold, dead body, nothing more. 
than a symbol of messianic expectations dashed against that stone that he's now laying on. He promised eternal life, but as every follower of his at the time looked around, it looked as though he couldn't even keep his own. The disciples are nowhere to be seen. They are uh, officially in hiding. The crowds have dissipated. And it seems clear at this point that Jesus is just one more in a long line of religious leaders who claimed something special but delivered nothing more. But as one pastor famously said, it's Friday, but Sunday's coming. And this morning we'll be considering together as we turn from Mark chapter 15 to Mark chapter 16 that we have arrived at Sunday morning and what a morning it is. What a tremendous morning. What a morning that changed the whole world. So if you would look with me at Mark 16 starting in verse 1. When the Sabbath was passed. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, that's Sunday, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? But go, tell his disciples and Peter that... He is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. They said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. At daybreak, we've just read, three women headed out toward the tomb. Mary... Magdalene is mentioned first, then a different Mary, and Salome were first mentioned at the crucifixion. We saw them last week. And in chapter 15, verse 41, very helpfully, we're told that these women had followed Jesus in Galilee. That's more than a a geographical marker. Mark is telling us these women had followed Jesus for years. They had been among his larger group of disciples. And that passage tells us that they were on Jesus' team. They helped serve Jesus and minister to him and helped uh, be a part of the advancement of his budding kingdom. Ladies, you and people like you have always been loved by Jesus and are absolutely vital to his work. The Bible teaches something theologians call a complementarianism. That's a big fancy word you won't find in the scriptures, but it's simply a term describing that 
men and women complement each other. Now, we should say nice things to each other, but not that kind of compliment. Rather, we add to each other's strengths. Men and women, you see, are both created in the image of God, and from creation onward, God has, in his good providence, given the world two genders, male and female, equal in value, equal in worth, equal in dignity, equal recipients of the gifts of God, and yet distinct from each other, gloriously different. Can I get an amen? And not simply interchangeable, but different. Sometimes this gets misunderstood as a devaluing of women, but nothing could be further from the truth. If you give a good, thorough study to church history, what you'll find is that everywhere Christianity has been rightly understood. There is an elevation, a lifting up of women in their daily lives. Women are treated better, not worse, where Christianity is embraced. You see, it takes both genders, male and female, to properly display the image of God. We can't get off the first page of the Bible without seeing that. It's that important to the biblical story. Christianity uniquely celebrates and embraces that fact. Perhaps this is seen nowhere in Scripture more clearly than in the ministry of Jesus. And that's why I'm belaboring the point a little bit here. Mary Magdalene, Mary, and Salome have been entrusted by Jesus to be among the very few that were his disciples in his earthly ministry. And now it's them, not Peter, not James, not John, it's them who are the first to encounter Jesus at the tomb. They were there to get something done, but something would happen to them instead. But I just want us to really slow down for a moment and consider these three courageous women are the first to encounter the news that the world has been forever changed. They were the ones, not the apostles. It was them, these three. The tomb is empty. And the first to hear it, ladies, were people just like you. I hope this helps you understand the good and freeing nature of the kingdom of God and something of God's um, perspective and love and care for you, women. These three women are walking down the path headed to the tomb. I think it's a little amusing that it's at that point they say, how are we going to get that stone out of the way? But they came to give their respects to Jesus and to give him a proper burial because Jesus had died as uh, the end of the day was coming, the Sabbath was about to begin. He couldn't be given the proper burial that 
he deserved. And so they came back in the very first possible moment to take care of him, to, to wrap his body in likely several dozen pounds of spices and to give him a proper burial. It's a solemn and difficult trek they are making. Despite Jesus' clear teaching that he would return after his death, no one expected that. The Jews had an idea of resurrection, but it was the resurrection in the last day at the end of time. They didn't have a category for a resurrection before that. These three dear women, let alone the 12, never imagined an empty tomb. And so imagine their surprise as they're wondering, how are we going to get that stone moved? And then they show up and it's already moved. As they neared the tomb, they could see with their eyes that the stone had been rolled, but they couldn't see in. Tombs were, were not what we think of today, where there's a, a burial under the ground, six feet down in it, but rather they would take, if you had means, they would take the time to cut a, a, um, through the rock into the side of a hill and then would seal it with a, a rock. This tomb was then a man-made tunnel in which a whole family would be buried. Cut in the side of a hill, sealed with a boulder. Their speculations, I imagine, started at that point. What, what's going on? Why is, the, why is the stone moved? What, what could have happened? But they kept going. They were committed to the task for which they had come. As they reached verse 5, or as verse 5 describes... We're simply told they entered the tomb. And then to their shock, Jesus is gone. Nowhere to be seen. Instead, they found what Mark calls a young man sitting by the tomb. This is clearly an indirect way of describing an angel. This angel had been sitting there waiting for them. And he had quite the news to share. Now, I know likely every single person hearing me right now already knows exactly what happened. But just imagine if you could. Imagine you walk into that tomb and you don't know the rest of the story. And there's a, a guy sitting there, brilliantly white, almost glowing, sitting next to where Jesus would have been laid. And imagine their astonishment. Verse 16 tells us, he said to them, first words out of his mouth, do not be alarmed. Maybe if one of them were sarcastic, they would have said, well, then don't sit here and talk to us. <laughs> but the first words out of that angel's mouth are, don't be alarmed. It's interesting, isn't it? The most common command in Scripture, 
is fear not. Sinful humanity of all emotions is marked by fear. Fear. Don't be alarmed. Now, the word alarmed is a very particular word, not used often in the Bible at all. Alarmed is the same Greek word used to describe Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. As he entered into his agony, anticipating what was to come, he became alarmed and distressed. That's the way the women felt. And their distress is understandable, isn't it? They are astonished and terrified because Jesus' body is gone and instead there is an angel there. Now, his, his next words are the best words. That latter half of verse 6 is worth reading again. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. And then I imagine he's pointing as he's sitting there. See? See? The place where they laid him. He has risen. He is not here. Wow. Thank you, Lynn. You got me. It is not an overstatement to assert that these words, those words, in fact, in the original language of the New Testament, he is risen or he has risen is a single word. That single word is the fountain of the faith. This is it, brothers and sisters. The resurrection is everything. Listen to the way the Apostle Paul put it, how he explained it, because Mark doesn't really do that here. He tells us what happened, but not its meaning. In 1 Corinthians 15, we read these words, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. The resurrection, beloved, is absolutely essential. It is the key historical fact that unlocks Christianity. It is, as I said a moment ago, the theological fountainhead of the faith. Paul says, look at it closely, Without it, faith is futile. Why? Because we remain in our sins. And if we hope in Christ only now, only for what we're doing today, only in the few little brief years we're alive on earth, then we're of all people most to be pitied. Paul doesn't mince any words for us here. He wants us to see the resurrection is the key. It's imperative at this point that we note something I, th- I think sometimes gets confused. That is, Jesus' resurrection was not a resuscitation. 
It's not as though God the Father and God the Spirit breathed life into Jesus' dead body and he got up in the same way Lazarus did. Lazarus coming back was a resuscitation. Lazarus died again. He got a bit of a ripoff. He got a few more years. But Jesus' return was a resurrection. Yes, the words start the same, but they mean very, very, very different things. Jesus was dead, dead. Not in a coma. Not sleeping for a few days. Dead. Such that when he rose again, he had been changed. Gloriously changed. This is where so much of our hope lies. This is where so much of what gets us through the difficult things here sustains us. What I mean is, sometime, sometime later today, take the five, six, seven, eight minutes it would take you to read all of 1 Corinthians 15 very, very closely. Because he's speaking to these exact issues. What if there wasn't a resurrection? And what we'll see is that Jesus' pummeled body had been transformed. He, 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 he looked like Jesus, but, but he'd been changed. He rose into a body that would never die again, never subject to back pain, cancer, COVID-2, or whatever it would have been then. Never growing old never hurting to get out of bed in the morning, never having to get up every two hours to go potty. And even more important than those things, as great as they are, never subject to temptation. Transformed. Transformed into radiance. Doesn't that sound great? Jesus' resurrection, you see, is not a resuscitation. And so Jesus serves as what 1 Corinthians 15 calls uh, the first fruits. That's not a term any of us use. But it's the, the very first produce, the very first crop. Jesus is the first of many who will come after him. Look around you, brothers and sisters. All of us who are in Christ will get one like Jesus. We will be resurrected into bodies like his, still identifiable, 
But so much of the difficulties we face are physical, and they will be resolved forever. It's amazing. What we need is not a Band-Aid on this life. We need a resurrection. We need new life. And that's what Jesus brought that day. Jesus' resurrection proved that everything he said in Mark 1 through 15, everything he claimed, everything he did, is exactly right. It's true. The resurrection is the proof. It demonstrated his victory over sin and death and the devil. It set him apart as the first of the new humanity, the new creation that we all spiritually have been born into and physically will experience in the new heavens and new earth. It showed him to be Lord, Redeemer, Son of God, King, Savior, Messiah, Victor. This is Jesus in his glorious, miraculous resurrection. Now, the women's reaction to that news is exactly what any of us would have done. It was trembling. It was astonishment. It was fear. People don't come back from the dead, especially transformed. Now, today we get some jokers who write books and say they've come back from the dead. But Jesus did the real thing. And he got the ultimate book about it. Mark makes no attempt to sugarcoat their reaction. And so verse 8 ends in this very, very, very raw, real, authentic way. It says they said nothing to anyone. For they were afraid. There's a great way to get Christianity up off the ground. Say nothing to anyone. That's a startling verse. But what I'd love to think with you about in the rest of the time we have is not only that that's a startling verse, but what's even more startling than that. That is that those are the last words of the Gospel of Mark. Now let that, I'll explain in a minute, but let that sink in. Mark ends with a cliffhanger. Mark ends with an open-ended invitation. So much so that it feels like no ending at all. It makes Jonah, those of you who have read it, it makes Jonah look like the clearest, most precise ending anywhere. Now, this will take some explanation. Uh, a few of you are, are going to be um, uninterested in this at all, and so it's totally fine with me if you check out. Some of you are going to be really concerned about this, and so I want to speak with you in particular. You'll notice if you look carefully in your copy of the Bible that verses 9 through 20 
are bracketed. They're bracketed because there is no religious conspiracy. There is no deep state cover-up. Scholars are telling us with those brackets, we've got a bit of a complication here. And here it is. For we have no desire, no reason, no motivation to pretend it doesn't exist. Here it is. You decide what to do with it. In my Bible, the ESV translation, editors make a comment directly above those verses. And it says also in brackets, some of the earliest manuscripts do not include 16, 9 through 20. Well, friends, that's the main reason those verses are bracketed. Out of the 5,000 plus manuscripts and fragments of the New Testament that have been discovered, the earliest among them do not contain verses 9 through 20. And that makes it extremely unlikely that those verses are original. Mark, 99.9% sure, did not write those verses. However, a sizable number of copies do contain them. And so they're included here. You'll need to make your own decision on the matter. Now here's probably what happened if we try to reconstruct this a bit. Mark chose to leave his gospel without the smooth ending that we would anticipate he would have. Now that's not a big deal because guess what? You got three other choices. Matthew, Luke, John. All end unsurprisingly. They tell us what happened. Jesus did, in fact, go to Galilee. The disciples saw him. They hung out. We even know they had a fish meal together. And eventually he commissioned them and he ascended back to heaven. That's historically what happened. We know that from the other books. But Mark, interestingly, Mark doesn't include any of those details. We have the plain facts elsewhere, but not from Mark. Why? Mark carefully crafted a literary cliffhanger. It's deliberately unsatisfactory. At least it feels that way to me. The women are told Jesus is resurrected. They're given directions. Go, go ahead to Galilee. Jesus will show up there and get the disciples up there with you. They'll see him there. We learned that everything happened exactly as Jesus said. Jesus has triumphed. And for Mark, for 16 chapters, he has pressed us to wrestle with the question, who is Jesus? Over and over and over, that's been what he's been about. Who is he? Well, let me show you in what he does. Hear it in what he says. Listen to how people respond to him. Who is Jesus? Here's the evidence. And boy, he's spread a lot of it for us. And in Jesus' death, it is revealed. Again, fascinatingly, not by a disciple, 
not even by a Jew, but by an outsider, by a, a Roman soldier who confesses Jesus is the Son of God. It's in Jesus' death that his identity is ultimately seen. And this identity is then confirmed in the resurrection. I mean, we're told of it, but we just don't meet Jesus. Mark wants us to wrestle at the deepest level with Jesus' identity. He doesn't want to just wrap up his conclusion like a Christmas gift with a nice little bow on top. Instead, he wants to give us one of those annoying presents inside a present, inside a present, inside a present, to the kid who thinks, is this even worth it? And then finally gets there to the real gift. That is, a personal encounter with the resurrected Jesus. As you deeply consider, not tritely, not quickly, who is he? It forces you to go back into the rest of the book, to read it again, if you will, and to unwrap each one of those boxes to get down to the goods. Yes, it's clunky and awkward. And so, while there's no Hollywood ending stuff, there is, Mark wants his first audience to see, there is something to ponder, to consider deeply. I, I love it. I think it's fantastic. But it's not satisfactory because it presses us to wrestle with the issues. So Mark made his original copy. That's called an, an autograph. And then that autograph began to be passed around and copied. And so the very first people who heard Mark heard Mark to be ending at verse 8. But somewhere along the way, a scribe or scribes couldn't handle the awkward ending. The clunkiness drove them bonkers. And so he or they added in, smoothed out, if you would, the ending, making it, for most of it, making it similar to the other Gospels. And so while Mark wanted us to be left scratching our heads, combing back through the rest of Mark, trying to figure out why did he end this way, a well-meaning scribe or scribes smoothed out the ending for us, making it similar to the other Gospels. It's not awkward anymore. And then that started getting copied over and over and over and over. That's it. No big conspiracy here. Uh, conservative and liberal scholars alike, Christian and non-Christian alike, almost universally reject verses 9 to 20. And we should too. Why? Number one, they're not in the oldest manuscripts. This, uh, this discipline of determining what was original in a text is called textual criticism, in which scholars are looking at the text in a critical way to ascertain what was original. 
And so they have rules of the trade. Every job has norms through which you operate. So one of those is, the older the reading, the more likely the original reading. Because scribes would sometimes add things, but rarely take something out. Number two, the shorter the reading, the longer the reading, the shorter the reading, the more likely the original reading. Because again, they would often add, not take away. Number three, the more difficult reading, the more probable that it's the original. And ending at eight is certainly more difficult. And so, for these reasons, the shorter reading is almost certainly correct. Now, additionally, some of what's in verses 9 through 20 is quite suspect. In particular, these lines about drinking poison and not getting hurt. I think I'd just ask you, as you've spent time in your Bible, do you see anything else promising you? Follow Jesus and go drink poison. It's not there. It's simply not there. And so there are promises made there that God didn't make. We get no hint at all from any passage outside of these suspect verses that every person who follows Jesus will be able to do signs and wonders, perform healings, bring about miracles, and sip on all the poison they want without getting killed in the process. So church, Mark 16 ends in Mark 16, 8. And this is no accident. Jesus is risen. Jesus is who he claimed to be. He's who Peter confessed to be the Messiah and the centurion confessed to be the Son of God. Jesus is the hope of the world. Mark has written from beginning to end not to give us a stale, historical, dry, PBS lesson. He's written to persuade. Mark is a persuasive book aiming to persuade you that Jesus is who he says he is. And he's who Peter confessed him to be. And he, he's who the centurion confessed him to be. And so here's the question, if we put it in the form of a question. Now that Jesus is resurrected, just as he said, who do you say he is? Who do you say he is? Friends, there is no question of greater consequence. That's it. That is the question of every question. Who do you say Jesus is? Mark, in the wisdom of God, under the inspiration of the Spirit, gets us at that question by leaving us with women who came to the tomb. They did more 
than any of the male disciples. They're still there at this point in the story. And yet not even they followed through. They fled in fear. What will you do? That's what Mark wants us to see. Who do you say he is? Who do you say he is? If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ, you wouldn't call yourself a Christian. Who do you say Jesus is? I would encourage you to recognize that either what Jesus said and what Jesus did and this resurrection stuff is, is actually right. Or don't pay any attention to Jesus at all. Because if he lied about the resurrection, why would you trust him about anything else? But if he is, in fact, resurrected, why would you do anything else with him but give him your whole self? That's what he's after. He wants your love, your worship, your affection, your obedience. And he knows the only way he can have any of that is if you would bring to him your sin and he'll bring to you his righteousness. I hope today if there's anyone here who doesn't know him that you would in fact, even now, go to him in prayer. Now, what about for those who are saved? Who, who is who is Jesus? Well, you've confessed him to be your Christ, your King, your Lord, your Savior, your Messiah. Are you living like he is all those things? Are you presently trusting him? Are you nurturing a deeper love for him? Is there something about which you are saying no to him? Friend, he is alive. He's well. He is ready to minister to you. Come to him. We are not in our sins. We have been set free. Let's live like it. And let's share him this Christmas. Jesus is risen. Will you stand and let's pray? Father, we thank you for your kindness to us in leaving us the Gospel of Mark. We thank you for your super kindness in allowing us all these Sundays together, spending the whole year looking with anticipation at what Christ did that we might know who Christ is. We pray 
that we would be a people who live like our king is alive because he is. I would pray this morning in particular for the discouraged, defeated, depressed, sad Christian. Father, would you minister to them with these wonderful words that Christ is alive and that one day they will get a resurrection body just like his. Until then, may we rejoice with each other in our rejoicings and weep with each other in our weepings. Because the body of Christ in the world today is us. The work gets done through your people. So I pray that we would minister to one another and confess this Christ to those who don't know you around the Christmas tree and table. And we confess today, he is the Messiah and he is the Son of God. And it is him we serve. In Jesus' name, amen.